Welcome to Conversation Pace. I'm your host, Brian Rossetti. In episode 19, I spoke with running ambassador and coach Stephen England. I've gotten to work closely with Stephen and his wife, Tiffany, while coaching our marathon training groups in New York City. When Stephen is not working his day job, he's either running, pacing, coaching, or traveling somewhere new around the world to run and explore. You can't ask for a better ambassador of the sport. Since he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 14, he's been determined to show and inspire others impacted that he runs the disease, not the other way around. In this episode, we discuss what it's like right now living and running in New York City, his early running days growing up in England, the backstory of his diagnosis and how he manages running with type 1 diabetes, and running 245 for a marathon while also training for ultras. Stephen's story is an inspiring one. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Stephen, welcome to the show, man. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? How's it going in New York? Good. New York is booming. Booming. Uh, no, I mean, it's all good. 2020, as you know, is, a, is, a, is being a fun year for everyone around the world. But uh, yeah, living in New York... Through coronavirus, uh, I think running has been my has been my saving grace as as per usual. But yeah, I'm doing doing pretty good over here. Where 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 are you at right now? I'm actually in Scranton, Pennsylvania, of all places. Um, so I've been back and forth from here in New York since the the quarantine this past spring. Um, fortunately, we we had space here in Pennsylvania so we can take the kids and um, be a little bit more free, you know, outside. And uh, so we've been fortunate. So I, I can't imagine um, all the families that have, you know, have been there this whole time and um, been stuck indoors and sort of feeling cramped, but the city does feel like it's coming back. Right. I mean, I, again, I've only been back a few times since, um, this past spring, but it feels a little bit more relaxed and obviously the cases are down. Um, and, but in terms of running and I guess just sort of that, that anxiety, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as bad these days. Right. Yeah. I think I, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, we've, me and Tiffany have been kind of living in our 500 plus square foot apartment for, you know, through through the <laughs> through the pandemic, uh, we've done a couple of escapes to the Midwest and and a, a nice trip to Alaska. But otherwise, we've been here, and we've seen it evolve from you know extremely scary times in March, April, May, and no one knowing what anything really means and how serious it is. And I think everyone's getting an understanding about about it as each day almost. But the city has definitely. Yeah. Getting- it's getting its vibe back. People are trying to, I mean, I'm working full time and busy and uh, the city's trying to kind of get its hustle back and traffic is back, which is probably bad, but in some ways it's good because it shows the city is alive and <laughs> it's, tr- it's trying to thrive again. Um, and yeah, in the running scene, I think the park is busy and people are respectful of the space and what needs to be done to be, to be socially distant and, seeing a few clubs and kind of crews 
connecting again, which is nice to see. Obviously, the races are very minimal, but um, at least people are yeah. beginning to socialize, but in, but in a very safe environment. And that's a real positive to see and be also be part of myself to an extent. Um, so, yeah, I think we're just going to – typical New Yorkers, right? We're tough and uh, we're going to get through this. Yeah. So you feel like um, – I want to talk about Alaska. I don't want to get, get too off track of my agenda here, but um, I do want to talk about Alaska real quickly. Um, but, but you mentioned the park, running in the park. Does it feel like besides, because I've noticed not everyone's running with masks, right? I feel like people are now comfortable that it's pretty safe, you know, running by people without masks. What, what's the percentage of people running with masks in the park right, right now? And does it feel pretty normal? There's people just running by each other, going in different directions. You're seeing people run out of the way to, you know, keep their distance or does it now kind of feel like there's some semblance of norm of normal, think, you know, when we're running in the park? Yeah. I, I think now, I think the, the mask ratio, how I see it, I, I live right by the top of central park. So I have no excuse not to run there most days of the week. Yeah. It's a big reason why we live where we live. Um, I would say it's about 50-50 in terms of masks, non-masks. And that goes for not just the running scene, but the cyclists, you know, in the middle lane and rollerbladers, hikers, dog walkers, whatever. So it's really like, it's really split. But I think it's, people are understanding that I think you can go and exercise without a mask gone. And because you're going past someone quickly, it's such a split second of an opposite direction or just flying past someone. Um, I think we're getting educated enough to know that that's pretty much safe. I think what we know to how I understand it is the unsafe environment is groups of people indoors for a long time. And clearly Central Park is not that. Um, so there is, yeah. some, there is some normalcy to it. And um, there's definitely... Uh, I've not seen or heard too much too much of the mask shaming, you know, typical New Yorkers shouting at each other. I don't see a lot of that aggression in the park the last the last few weeks, which is which is good. Um, uh, it's a generally a very happy place as it should be. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, and then, what about traveling to Alaska? What was that like in terms of you know the airport? And I haven't traveled since the pandemic hit. Um, so I'm just curious, what was, was it tense on the plane? Were you comfortable, you know, flying that much? Um, what, what were people like? Were they pretty respectful? Was it tense at all in, in your travels to Alaska? I think um, we spent a lot of time debating whether to go anywhere and then where could we go. Um, Alaska was, the decision was picked because it was, technically in the US. I know that's kind of, and it is US, <laughs> the lower 48. And I'm not sure we would have ever gone to Alaska if it wasn't for the, for the pandemic, but it seemed like a great new state to, um, to travel to and explore because it's, it's so wild. I mean, it's, it's called the last frontier for a reason. It's got so many high peak mountains and just amazing scenery. Not many people. Um, and quite a few bears and other amazing wildlife that we got to see. But 
the travel part of it was definitely the most daunting, um, maybe more just the build up than the, than the reality. Um, mm. I think Tiffany was more on board than me a little bit, but, uh, we got the, we got the good, uh, as good as you can get the KN 95 masks for travel. Okay. And we were, we flew Delta, uh, we know they were doing a much better job of kind of holding back open seats up than other airlines. And we like them anyway. So, and they, they did a good job of that. So we, uh, we flew, I think via Minneapolis for a quick pit stop and then kept going off to Anchorage. Um, so it wasn't a direct flight, which is a, you know, would have been probably a bit better, but we didn't have that option. And yeah, everyone on the plane was very respectful. Um, you just wore your mask the whole time. If you were eating and drinking, you quickly took it off and did that. But otherwise, you know, you found a film or read your book or slept, whatever you want to do to travel. And, uh, and, yeah. and then we got there and we, we, we rented a gigantic SUV because that kind of became our, um, you know, kind of our home away from home. If we wanted to like, if we got in trouble where we couldn't put up our tent one night, we could always, uh, sleep in the back of the, the SUV. So that's kind of how we've traveled a lot over the years. And it's, uh, it's good for the budgets too, but it just keeps it real simple. And especially during the virus, it's just, yeah, it's just us two traveling around the mountains and the lakes and all that, just pinging around and our interactions with people are very, very limited, which, which is great for, um, for how we have to, you know, live right now. That's so cool. So, and in terms of you guys travel so much, it's inspiring to, to see all the places that you get to run in. Where does Alaska rank in terms of scenery and, and running on your list? Cause you guys have traveled so much. Um, so just curious. Um, I don't think I've got a number for it. I would just say it ranks super high um, because we have traveled to many amazing places, most of them were mountains, uh, Patagonia, Himalayas, uh, the Norway fjords, just last December. Like they're super highlighted trips, but Alaska was just just a fantastic place. I mean, it has, I can't remember the stats, but maybe like 14 of the top 18 highest mountains in the US. Mm. Um, crazy, crazy, uh, wild and uh, vast mountain landscapes uh it's just an awesome place to to visit um and uh kind of funny in some way we actually our trip was the same our two-week trip coincided with the same trip that jim wamsley and his girlfriend did yeah. <laughs> kind of found him doing stuff I'm like wait they're in alaska uh, we saw it on strava i think and then on one of the very last days we were we were doing a like an eight mile up and down mountain kind of hike run thing and as we were coming down, these two runners were coming up pretty fast. And of course, it was Jim and his girlfriend. So that was a pretty funny interaction. No way. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it was like there was like no one else around. And like it was just a weird kind of like, oh, hey. <laughs> Wait, so you had mentioned bears. I'm terrified of bears. I don't know if I could do Alaska. So did you see one or no? We tried very hard, mostly me, to find lots of lots of uh grizzly and black bears um what? <laughs> um i have a weird fascination with with bears i don't quite know why there's no real reason to why i like them 
Um, I've, I've only saw one in Lake Tahoe. My, my dad woke me up after a, that, a 200 mile race in Lake Tahoe. I, I was obviously exhausted, but he woke me up to go and to go and see this bear, like digging in the, the, the big dumpster and he was loving it. So maybe it's from my dad. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, Tiffany was more petrified of them and tried to keep a distance. I kept getting my, my, my iPhone now, which clearly is not a very good camera for, for bear pictures, but it was exciting nevertheless. And we saw about four, um, but from a very safe distance. So it was, it was, it was cool. Wow. I'm nervous just thinking about it. That's <laughs> crazy, man. Um, okay, cool. So I, I know your story, I, I guess more from a high level standpoint. So I'm excited to, to dig in a little bit here. So, and, and for you to share it with our, with our listeners. So, just let's step way back now and just talk a little bit about where you grew up and what your background was in terms of sport and introduction into running. Yeah. So, um, I guess big, it re- big rewind here. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I kind of tell it like it go sport is being part of my life since I can remember. I mean, I remember being in my, my my grandparents back garden in uh just outside london where i grew up and always wanting to kick kick a ball run around the garden swing a swing a tennis racket or a cricket bat whatever it was like sport was a big deal um we moved my family moved to hong kong for a few years in the late 80s and um and I guess in that time, that was the initial part of where I found running because there was the annual track and field kind of meet. And I was like nine years old, eight, nine, ten. And so I was doing these 100-meter sprints, 200 meters at most, and doing okay, nothing crazy. Um, we came back to the UK. I was 10, and my middle school there, we had to run a cross-country race the whole school had to do it. And mm. all I knew was, I didn't really, at that point, I didn't know really what I was in terms of a sportsman. But there was a, a kid in school called James and he was, he was the renowned, like kind of Tom Brady of the school, right? Like he could do everything the best and everyone knew it. And I was the new kid from Hong Kong. So mm. kind of zero pressure. And we did this cross country race, probably about three miles long, maybe a bit less. And, uh, somewhere in the woods towards the finish line, I'm running around like, you know, hot out of my chest kind of style, like all over the place. And I turn, I turn a corner and I see the back of James with about a third of a mile to go maybe. And I just went straight past him, didn't look at him. I remember breaking the tape and just this light bulb kind of moment come, comes on where that's when I realized, okay, I think I'm a runner. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, then, then from there, kind of my cross country coach grabbed me, uh, from my secondary school. So he knew that I was, I loved football, which we would call soccer overseas here. Um, so football was my true love and I did my running to, to kind of maintain my fitness and to try and be the fittest person on the, on the pitch. Mm. Uh, but my, so even after that race, it was kind of like you were still focused on football. Oh yeah, for me. Yeah. I mean, I was I was playing football for for like school and clubs, uh, and county level uh, between the age of ten and sixteen. I didn't 
I never let that go for as long as I could, still thinking that, uh, you know, I could be the David Beckham that I didn't become, but not many, <laughs> not many people do. Wait, uh, so was Beckham, who was your, who were your favorite athletes at that time? Like who inspired you? Um, I was an, I was an, I was an Arsenal fan. So I really, I wasn't a, a huge, I mean, Beckham was a bit later than this anyway, but yeah, yeah. That's okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, the time when that, when I really got into it was Italian 90 world cup and players like Gary Lineker and Gaza, uh, they're these two players for England that almost won us the world cup almost except for the Germans. Uh, but the irony was they played for Spurs, which is Arsenal's nemesis in North London. And my granddad was Arsenal because I was 10 and immature. And just to play with him, I, I, was, a, I was a very brief Spurs fan, which I'm going on the record to say. <laughs> my, granddad, my granddad passed away shortly after that and broke my heart. He was the first person in my life that I lost. And as soon as he died, I... I went to the shop with my mom to pick out like a Spurs kit. And in the mm. shop, I got an Arsenal kit. And the guy said, you can't do that. And I was like, I could do whatever I want. <laughs> so I, I came back to school in this Arsenal kit. All my friends were like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> Thank goodness I changed. Um, so that was my team. That was my, that's who I followed. And that's what I, I played football with a lot of enjoyment and running was almost just this secondary sport just to like boost my football endurance. Um, but what was happening was as I was becoming a teenager, I was winning all my cross country races. Like every weekend I was winning the local race for my school. Mm. And you know, the more I won, the more I wanted to do it because obviously if, if you're good at something, then you want to go back to it. And football was going good, but not great. Um, so that was kind of my, my teenage years or the beginning part of my teenage years of, of playing sport. Um, you know, then I guess from there, you know, late, late into teenage years, maybe I wasn't quite into the sport as much. It was more just like getting into more of a party scene and things like that. But I was still running. I was running a lot, yeah. you know, that you kind of like, you're, you're, you're graduating, uh, what I call secondary school, you call high school, going to university, so things kind of went a little bit afraid for a while, but what never really left me was I would always, I would always run, um, three times a week just because I loved, I loved to run, um, in the evening where like, where if I was at university, like ran my, in, in the city or by the river, whatever it was, like it just was, it was part of my life. It never really, never really went away. Um, and it was simply this, the hook was just simply that race because of school. There was, there was no other interest or connection to the sport other than the, basically your, your school putting on this race. That's why you participated and otherwise you might not have. It, exactly. It wasn't, it wasn't like a particular role model runner that I, that I was really looking up to and trying to become. It was just the, the odds that I was mandatory having to do this race. So, and I loved sports, so it wasn't exactly hard to get involved in, and really, really give it a hundred percent. But yeah, that great, great Britain had great, um, well, particular great middle distance runners at the time. So were you aware of the running scene and athletics like, and the running community where you grew up or now was it, was it not as visible? I think I, 
I mean, I was to an extent, but we're talking about things like Barcelona, 92 Olympics. Linfo Christie was like our star with the instructing. Later on, you've got uh, Sally Gunner was a great 400-meter hurdler. She won. I think she won her event. I'm pretty sure she did. Um, Jonathan Edwards, triple jumper. Yeah, I mean, I I knew the main superstars of the Great Britain team. Yeah. but they they weren't yeah. driving me to into what I guess I've become now. Uh, may, maybe they were subconsciously, but they, they they weren't like my like I said. I think what was going on was I was so into my football world that running really wasn't my biggest thing um, at that time of my life. Um, well, talk so then talk a little bit about the diagnosis and when you found out and how that impacted, you know, your participation, like what was, I'm really interested in, you know, what was the state of diabetes at, at that time? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm not aware. So what year would this have been? And um, just give us a little bit on the backstory of the, on the diagnosis. Yeah. So that ties in with what we just kind of went through a lot of like the football running kind of world. I was, juggling all all at once i just turned 14 um end of march uh and i would had gone on a football trip with my local club to to the netherlands to compete in a kind of a european club environment semi-serious i mean i thought it was serious but looking back it probably was more fun for the the dads than we took it very seriously and um I played about three or four games in a couple of days out there. And, I, and I'd gone the previous year and played pretty well. But this year when I went, there was something very different about my body, my mm. just extreme tiredness, um, extreme thirst, losing weight, um, looking extremely pale, just kind of just really out of it. And I just didn't really play well I remember didn't play well in any of those games we returned home uh my dad was with me for this trip we returned home my mum kind of opened the door and was like oh you look really bad and we just thought it was flu so spent Mm. spent Monday off school at home thinking it was flu and then Tuesday morning came I looked worse so me and my mum went to the local doctor and after he asked, obviously, a bunch of questions about how I was feeling, he said that um, he thinks he thinks he knows what it is. It's, he thinks it's pretty serious, but he didn't have the equipment to to do the test where he was, and we'd have to drive down to the main hospital, which is about a thirty minute drive, and that's all he told us. Wow. So, which is just turning fourteen, and for my mum, I'm sure we were just. Wow. We were pretty scared. I mean, didn't, it was a very much, I mean, maybe my mom was told what it could be, but I definitely wasn't. So we went down for this drive and I don't think we spoke. We just went to the hospital and petrified what was going on. And I went to a, uh, I guess what I now know to be an endocrinologist um, department of the hospital. And uh, a nurse came in and simply gave me, pricked my finger to draw some blood, put it onto a blood tester, um, 
I'm assuming she got a reading within 30 seconds. This is like 1994, so this is old technology. But she she left the room and eventually came back, and there she told me, um, I'm sorry to tell you, Stephen, but you you have type 1 diabetes. And that's all I remember her saying, because at that point, I I fainted, slapped down onto the carpet floor. You Uh, fainted just because you were just in... You were in shock, not because of of how you were feeling. It was the shock from her saying that. Yeah, I didn't know what that really meant. Right. Uh, it was the shock of the words, knowing that there was officially something wrong. Um, and all I knew about diabetes before that moment was a, a poster that was circulating in the London area where I lived, outskirts, of a, a mother injecting her baby with insulin because he was type 1 diabetic and something like, I hate that I have to make my child um, feel pain every single day to keep him alive. Oh, wow. And I I hated injections. I mean, I was, even now, I just got a flu shot two weeks ago. I don't, I don't, I don't even look at the needle. They, the nurses laugh at me that I still can't look at needles unless I do it myself. So that was, that was my, that was my, um, only experience of diabetes when I was diagnosed was that. And then, yeah, I just, I passed out. So I, I, um, I spent about four, four days at that point in the hospital, um, all hooked up, getting insulin in my body, nurses and doctors kind of coming and going and testing and just getting under control. Um, Did you have symptoms? I mean, looking back, do you, do you remember symptoms leading up to that moment where you started to um, fail, you know, did, or did it all really just come on so quickly like that, that weekend during that tournament? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't recall anything before that tournament abroad where my my performance in either running or, or football training or games was deteriorating. Um, do you see that with other, is is that common and with diabetes, like where it can just happen all of a sudden, like you you would have no no um, no idea that that this might be you know happening. Like, the, what's the detection? I mean, how does it generally work? Yeah, I don't know if the word common is is yeah. is right because from speaking to so many people now that I know are also type one and hearing their stories, our stories are all our diagnosis stories are all somewhat different. And I've got friends that Hmm. have been having symptoms for many months and then they finally got diagnosed or there's ones like me, which I feel like I had symptoms for about three days before I was diagnosed. But before that, I, and I can't go back in time to prove that I'm right, but that's how I, that's how I remember it for me. Yeah. Wow. So at 14, I mean, your perception was like, your life's going to be in that moment when you passed out, it was like, my life is, you know, it's ruined. It's, it's totally, it's going to be totally, I mean, were you afraid that it was like a death sentence? I mean, just from what you understood at that time, like it was, it was just scary, essentially. I think maybe the story's a bit reversed. I think when I, when I, when I uh, came around from from passing out and I got put into a hospital bed and set up, yeah, um, the doctors were doing the rounds. I think it may have been the following morning after being diagnosed, 
and I was pretty upbeat. I was thinking about mm. um, I was still going to be a football player or I was going to be a, uh, a fighter pilot or a firefighter, all these action kind of careers. And the doctor rolls in. He'd obviously got the, the heads up that I liked to run around a lot. And he just ultimately said, you're not going to be able to do as much running uh, as you as you have been doing with, with this diagnosis. Um, well, let me back up a little bit. I, I didn't even know that getting diagnosed was for life. This was like a lifetime. Mm. There's no cure for type 1 diabetes. You can't reverse it. You can't run it. You can't run away from it or take a certain medication. Like This is a, a life-changing moment, and I didn't know that. So he told me that. That was hard to hear, followed by you're going to have to limit your level of kind of uh, exercise sport. And that was the part that really, really crushed me. I mean, way more crushing to hear, oh, you can't live your dream. You can't live out your dreams because of this diagnosis. Like, I wouldn't, that was, that was the true moment where, at first, I believed this doctor, and I don't even remember his name or what he looks like, but I know now I think about him a lot with what I have achieved and what I still want to achieve through running, um, knowing, that, knowing that he was absolutely wrong. And I'm trying, trying my best to live my life to prove to the next 14-year-old that gets diagnosed mm. that they're going to be okay. And that's a, that's a big fuel for me of why I do some things that I do. Yeah, it's interesting. So he, but was he being honest based on the, the evidence and, and what we knew at that time? Was he just, you know, giving it to you straight or is that not so much the case? Um, listen, I'm not, I'm nowhere near medically trained to say he was wrong. I think in general, I would say doctors like to be on the safe side. I mean, you've experienced this, I'm sure we're going in for like an injury that you don't want mm-hmm. to hear that serious all runners and athletes who are listening can understand that. And you want to be told by a doctor, no, you're fine. You should go and you should go and run that 10 K on the weekend. But normally the doctor will say, no rest this many weeks off PT, whatever the diagnosis or whatever the thing is. So I think he was just doing his job very, um, safely. And, um, maybe to me, um, at least, it came across super negative and just, like I said, it just absolutely crushed all of these, all of these dreams to be, you know, 14, you're not that many years from kind of becoming an adult. I think if, you, I mean, I guess you think of now it was like 18 years old, maybe 17, 18. And yeah, he was just like, just beating it down that that wasn't going to be happening and I'll be lucky just to have, you know, a, a healthy life injecting insulin every day. Um, and that's how it came across. Yeah. Well, how is how is managing it differ today versus, you know, when you were first starting off at 15, 14, 15? Um, um, just to so everyone you know, has some some idea of, of what it's like, you know, day to day managing based on you know, what we know today, technology and, and advancements there. Sure. So I'll start by saying it's been 26 years of being diagnosed with type one diabetes. And that's 
a significant amount of time for technology to to evolve, and it and it definitely has. Um, not so much in terms of like options of different brands that we can select from, um, but just how how we function and how we how we measure blood glucose and how we also insert insulin into us. So going back to diagnosis, I was I use these um, disposable pens um, before I whenever you eat eating. You, you're putting in insulin as a diabetic because you want to control the carbohydrates that you're consuming. We need obviously carbohydrates uh, as part of our diet, a large part of our diet, and we need carbohydrates to exercise. So to counterbalance that, about if I didn't ha- if I didn't take outside insulin, my glucose would skyrocket, which over a long period of time has a number of serious complications: um, blindness, kidney problems, heart amputations. A lot of a lot of bad things. If you do, if you have bad control, um, yeah. so that's why you take the insulin. So I was doing these pens uh, for each meal, before, and then a, that was a short term insulin. And then before bed, I would take a long term acting insulin. It just lasts. It just means it lasts a, n- a number of hours longer as you sleep. Yeah. Um, and I was doing blood tests with. Um, I was pricking my finger like how I was diagnosed with these test strips plugging them into a machine that used to take 30 seconds, I believe, to get the result. And then from seeing the number on your blood glucose meter, um, a a non-diabetic would be, uh, I'll do the American measurement, but uh, they would be between uh, 80 and about 120. Uh, For me, I could see anything from the the letters LO, which is short for low, (laughs) and the the letters HI, which is short for high, <laughs> which in number terms could basically be like you could be 20 and you could be 800. So the range of a diabetic, if you're not controlled, is extreme. And our, and our constant goal is to mimic a non-diabetic as best we can to stay in that 80, 130, like healthy um, range and easier said than done. Um Anyway, to speed back into the technology question, um, I now don't use insulin pens. I don't even inject. I use I use what we call an insulin pump. So I have a, a cannula. I have a little insert under the fat of my skin. On I place it on my stomach or on my lower back, just where there's a bit of a bit of fat, and that stays on there for three days. And there's insulin in kind of a like a pager almost, how, 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 how pages used to look is that kind of size. And that, that sits, sits on your hip or in your pocket. Um, or you can have a, those are the kind of things that we're using now. And then I also have a a chip, which is a Bluetooth chip, which goes to my phone that also inserts under my skin. And what that's doing is that's measuring my blood glucose every single minute for 10, Mm. for 10 days straight. And then I, I change it out. That's, that's the we call that a continuous glucose monitor. So yeah. that that now replaces doing these physical blood tests, um, and that for not just running and for racing, uh, especially long distance racing, um, that's been the biggest game changer for me to have to be using that for the past eight years to see trends of when you, of, of your blood glucose is it, is it steady? Is it about to go into low sugar? 
uh, which means that you need sugar to not go into a, a coma or pass out. Mm-hmm. Has not happened to me in 26 years, but it could. And also if the trend is going up or straight up because you have too many carbohydrates in your body, then you know to take insulin. So you can react a lot faster with this continuous glucose than doing a blood test, which you can imagine is, I compare it to a photograph. It's just it's just one moment in time and then that's your number. But you don't know what's happened to that number half an hour before or half an hour later unless you keep doing blood tests. So those are the changes we're seeing and um, that comes with health insurance, which is a whole different story we probably won't get into today, but as that's, long as- another, that's another episode. Exactly. Too much. It's too much. But if you have if you have a half decent health insurance plan in, in the US, which I hope everyone can get access to, then you can have these these tools that I've been using for a number of years and mm-hmm. it's really, really helped um, with my with my management to have really good control and just to be as healthy as I can be. Uh, until there's a cure and if there's not that's you know so be it I'll just keep doing what I'm doing what what are the stats um, do, do you have stats in terms of how many get diagnosed year to year um, in the US or worldwide with type 1 um, I don't know the stats off the top of my head um, the number there's diabetes falls into Simplistically, a type 1 diabetes world, which is me, and a type 2 diabetes world, which is the more common um, Mm. diagnosis, which falls into the reason you would be diagnosed with type 2, which most people probably know more about, is if you you um, inactive, have a bad diet, it can be genetics, um, it can be culturally, yeah, so there's just... Yeah, there's a lot like type two diabetes, for instance, like in India right now is is literally out of control. I mean, type two diabetes in the world and pre-diabetics, which we kind of touched on before when you asked me mm. how, how long was I feeling bad? That's a pre-diabetic. You, you have it, but you just haven't been diagnosed. And I don't know the stats of pre-diabetics in the world, but I assure you it's in the millions. And that's that's a that's a scary statistic. And I think diabetics combined type one and type two globally is around 450 million and it's only going up right now. And that's, that's a big, big problem. Um, I would like to do more to, to help combat that for sure. Wow. Yeah. It's saying I'm just looking on American diabetes association. So 2008, 34.2 million Americans, 10 and a half percent of the population um, nearly 1.6 million have type one. Right. Uh, okay. So, and then just real quickly in terms of a cure, is it, is there hope? Like, is it similar to something like Alzheimer's where it feels like they are getting closer? It might be something a little bit closer on the horizon versus cancer Obviously, there's all types of cancer, but with cancer, it's like, seems like we're making slow progress. It, it eventually, I can imagine a world without cancer, but it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. Like, where where are we with diabetes, would you say? Um, well, let's, 
be careful. Just let, let's let's call it type one diabetes cure yeah. because right. because type two we can people can reverse that through exercise and great diet. Yeah. So it's a bit separate. Type one. Um, fortunately, I have an amazing doctor, um, Dr. Robin Goland at Columbia University, and they don't just uh, treat patients like myself on a you know. Well, I see her every few months, but they see patients all the time. Um, they also have a research department at Columbia, and a lot of the money that they fund in helps that helps that inpatient keep going, keep the lights on. But it's also giving money to the research team looking for the cure. Um, so she tells me some kind of intel now and again. She has hope um, that. The cure is a few years away. We don't know what it looks like um, quite yet. There's. Uh, I also know very well the CEO of JDRF International. They're based in New York, and Aaron Kowalski, Dr. Aaron Kowalski, I should say, he's a he's a great runner. He's a marathon runner. He's he's uh, he's about to walk around uh, the Manhattan perimeter on uh, in a couple of weeks' time. So I see him and I kind of catch up with him through the running world. But he's him and JDRF are really doing great research. They have a lot of money invested in in finding the cure. Um, but yeah, how how that looks, uh, I don't know that information. I know there's a lot of we call it a closed loop kind of theory. Um, there's there's new products that are already kind of out and coming out soon. Where the insulin pump I was discussing, it's like what I have now is like a is like a manual car. Like I'm I'm I got the gear stick and I'm doing one through six in reverse myself. But these these hybrid loop um, insulin pumps, they will when you get to a certain number, they incorporate this glucose monitor that I have into the pump, so it, it combines the two into one. And what they're doing is if your blood glucose goes too low, they'll stop giving you insulin. It's like an alarm system. And if it goes too high, they'll actually it'll, it'll feed you more insulin to bring that number back down without you having to do anything. Um, those are seeing fantastic results. That's clearly that's not a cure. That's, yeah. not, that's a that's a that's a great technology advance. Right. Uh, but I I think I think in general the diabetes world is hopeful. Uh, I know parents of young children are especially uh, focused on it. They 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 seem to be the ones almost more concerned than the actual children who have type one, um, which I can respect. No one wants their child to have to go through uh, a diagnosis like this or, or like you said, like cancer and other things. And no, one, no one wants any of this. Um, but it's exciting times. Uh, next year, 2021, is the 100th year anniversary of uh, Dr. Banting in from Canada, um, he basically invented or he discovered insulin. And without him in 1921 discovering insulin, uh, then when I was diagnosed in 94, I wouldn't have been around very much longer beyond that diagnosis. So mm. we're yeah, very yeah. fortunate to have to have scientists, uh, people of that magnitude skill. Um, just to keep us alive, but obviously we are looking for the people are looking for the cure all the time, and there's a lot of money going into it. So I don't know. I mean, it could be 2030, uh, it could be 2040. Um, yeah. It may not be in my lifetime. 
we're pro science here, Stephen. We're hopeful. Um, we are. No, I, I'm. I'm all. For, I would. I would love nothing more than to see it in my lifetime. Trust me. Of course. Um, so I'm really curious in terms of diet. How much? How careful are you, and do you have to be with diet beyond you know m- managing? glucose or is or is that really your focus or is it being careful much beyond that i mean how do you manage diet especially as as a as an ultra runner um just curious how that is different for you yeah i think it go i think my diet choices go beyond being a type 1 diabetic athlete um i think people talk a lot about well, if you eat less carbohydrates in your diet, then it's far easier to control your diabetes because there's no carbs and there's, you don't need any insulin. Mm. But that's, in my opinion, that's not a good choice diet to have no <laughs> carbohydrates. I also, love, I also love carbohydrates. So that's going to be um, hard, to, hard to give up. Um, yeah, I... I would say that I've been, Tiffany's been vegan slash vegetarian for over a decade. Mm -hmm. And when you live with someone and then married to them, um, you start to kind of pick up each other's habits. And uh, I was a very much British meat eater, potatoes guy in the pub and kind of carried that over for many years. And... um, whatever kind of carbs I need, wanted, I would have, and I would, I would calculate my insulin needs for that. Um, I've made an adjustment in terms of uh, being um, free of meat for the past four years, um, although meat is protein, clearly. But, yeah, becoming vegetarian, trying to become vegan, but I do love cheese and ice cream a lot. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's tricky. Uh, I'm trying to do better with the non-dairy options, but uh, I just care about my diet so much in terms of like one to be a great athlete, um, and also with the non the non non meat world. Um, yeah, I've yeah. seen some scary documentaries that kind of hit home, and I decided that I don't need to be part of that environment where we don't. I, I now know I don't need to kill an animal to survive i can survive off plants fruits veg and you know some pizza and bread now and again of course but um i i really like that humanitarian kind of world and i wish more of us in the world did that i really really don't need or desire any meat anymore it was funny it's it started as a kind of a a trial joke where I did a three-month trial. This is because a lot of ultra runners, that really, really good ultra runners, are, are vegan. Scott Jurek is one um, who's won Western States seven times and a number of other amazing achievements in his career. But there's some great vegan ultra runners. So I tried yeah. a race called UTMB uh, 2016. I said, oh, okay, for the next three months before the race, I'm going to cut out all enemy. And I remember it was like at a gala. I had I had chicken at this gala in Midtown, and I said, "That's my that's it. I'm done. I don't. I'm not even enjoying it anymore. I'm just. I'm so. I'm so conscious. I don't need this." So I and I ra- I did that race, and I would say my training and 
not so much the race. The race is extremely hard. It's 100 miles in the French, Italian, Swiss Alps in one go. But the training up to that, I felt so much lighter and fresher and my, my brain and everything about it just felt great. And then what, what I thought I was looking forward to at the finish line would be like a big burger to celebrate. <laughs> no, I didn't. I mean, I probably wanted a black bean burger, but I didn't crave meat anymore. And that was, that was the beginning of what's kind of been a four plus year diet. So the, the, being vegetarian, has that changed um, or had any impact on managing the diabetes or no? It's, it really. Not um, really. Uh, I think, I think going back to that, the diabetes and the diet kind of part of it is, I'm a, I'm a high carb, uh, athlete. I'm probably 80% carbs. It's, it's, it's high. And, um, I've been told from my doctor and she's right. She says, if you can run a hundred miles, then you can figure out how to eat pizza, which is one of the trickiest foods to eat as a diabetic because it's high carb, high fat. And the Mm. fat, that the fat thing really froze off how insulin works in the bloodstream. But she said to me, if you can, if you can run this far and figure that out and be successful at that, you can figure out how to um, use your insulin, putting it in at the right time, how many units. Wow. We, can, we can do things called extended bolus, which means that the insulin that you're, put, you're injecting in, either through an injection or a pump, you can do it over like a window of time. So it could be over like three hours. You could be injecting units to cover for the pizza, as an example. And and she was right. What, what, whatever, whatever I want to eat, um, I eat. And that's a big kind of thing, right? Because a lot of people who don't know about this, they, they joke, but they almost don't mean it. They see a cookie or they see me like maybe a cookie in my hand. And I say, you can't eat that, you're diabetic, which is technically very offensive <laughs> right now. Um, <laughs> but I just, I use that as an opportunity to educate them. Sure, sure. Very, that's a very, very old mindset of thinking. And it's, it's demeaning to people to say, you're this, you can't have, you can't mm-hmm. have that. Um, but, but, that's, but that's only possible because of this, this new technology, right? That, that you're able to, to manage and, and, and be, or am I wrong to think uh, that? I think being on a, being, using an insulin pump over injections definitely helps. Okay. But I don't want to say that you can't just, you can't still be doing old school injections to, to control okay. diabetes and have great control. And the reason I say it is because I have so many friends uh, on my diabetes team um, that are still using injection pens. They don't want to transition to a pump. And one of them, one of my best friends, Benny, in California, he's run a 234 Boston Marathon. Um, he's, his control is equally as good as mine, maybe even better at times. And he doesn't have an insulin pump. Um, so it just comes down to the individual and a lot of discipline and how it just comes down to, I think, how much do you care about your health, both short term and long term? And that's something that you have to, I don't know if it's like you're born with it or you just have to like, you just have to really, really want to look after yourself because it's not, this is not an easy thing to control. Um, 
it just like anything in life, it just takes, it takes practice. It takes like, like training for a race, right? Um, it just takes a lot of time and care. You have to want to do it because if you don't want to do it, you can easily have really bad control and you're going to have health issues. Um, you're going to learn the hard way and that's, that's not the way to live. And I hope people, uh, are not kind of going down that path. And I mean, again, I hope, Stories like mine about running crazy long distances around the world with type one is a, is a motivator for them to understand that there's just no, there's no excuse. You just have to, you have to find a passion that you, that that you like. It hasn't got to be doing such a long race. It could be something else, a hobby that you like and just getting really, really like invested in that. Um, that to me is how, how you can live in a a positive, healthy life. So talk, uh, touching again back on the the doctor who, you know, gave you the diagnosis and pretty much said, um, you know, you're not going to be able to do running or sports like you like you have been as devastating as it was. It it's sort of it seems like it kind of put you on this path, right? Um, yeah, and it yeah. continues to to keep you going to to inspire others to that it isn't. Um, you know, limiting and what you can do today. So talk a little bit about how you ended up getting into marathoning. And I think what your PR is, is it 245? Correct me if I'm wrong now. You are, no, you're correct. It's, uh, it's, it remains 245. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, is that a source? Is that a sore subject? No, I don't, I don't think, I don't think so anymore. I think I think I'm I think I'm good with two forty five. People are probably cringing hearing that hearing yeah. that they can tell I'm not okay with it, but I am okay with it. So I'm gonna say I'm okay with it and try and I, try to mean it. I know. I always laugh um when Jack gives like a talk because he'll say, you know, I wasn't I was never a good runner. I was pretty slow and people will say, Well what did what what did you run for a marathon? And I think it was in you know, it's sub three, I think is best marathon. So when he says it, people start laughing, you know, as if he was kidding, but Jack isn't trying to be insulting. Like to him, you know, that wasn't that fast. <laughs> you know, Like back when he ran a marathon, I don't think, you know, not many people participated in marathons. It was a very, you know, tiny group of people who ran you know, probably like a hundred plus miles a week. Right. So all these guys were out running pretty fast. And so for Jack, it was like not a big deal. And, and now you've got such you know mass participation ac- across the sport and to break three hours is a big deal, you know? Um, but so I would get a kick out of that, but two forty five is flying. That's almost, that's almost the beauty of, of the sport that we, that we love. Right. I mean, yeah. we're never satisfied. We always want, we're like, <laughs> like that chasing the unicorn thing for Boston with, we're chasing another five minutes off our times. And a lot of us will, you know, we don't even know what our fastest time is until it's too late. But that's just, to me, is just like, that's why we, that's the appeal. We want to keep coming back to the start line to give it another go and give it another go. And that's what we, that's a, that's a great kind of mindset to have, I think. Yeah. Was, was 245 at Marine, was that the first time you did it at Marine Corps? Uh, Yes. Yeah. So what year was that? So Marine Corps was 2011, which is also, well, I'll back up a bit. So my, mar- my marathon debut was London. 
which looking back now is a relief because everyone in America wants to get into London and I was living there and I think it took me three times to get in just for the record. Mm. I wasn't like super lucky. It took me, it took me a while to get in. And then I had a break because it broke me basically. <laughs> I ran like a 348 and walked in the last 5k. I was, I was a mess. Um, and then I did New York in 09 and Chicago in 10, Boston. Yeah. Boston 11 was my first, I think it was my first one. Um, Marine Corps was interesting because what happened was that was my introduction. 2011 is a big year because that was my first year of going into the ultramarathon world. Mm. Um, ultramarathon being anything longer than a marathon. So I did a, I did a 50K in May of 2011, and then I signed up for a, the oldest 50-miler in America called GFK50 in Maryland. And as a – this may sound peculiar maybe, but as a training run slash race, I got into Marine Corps Marathon about a month before GFK. <laughs> and um, I was using – at that point with uh, one of our mutual good friends, Gary Barad, I was training – with the VDOT um, program, both for Boston, uh, which was a PR then, I think it was 254. Mm -hmm. And I then used it again, just as preparation towards Marine Corps, but knowing I had to do some more longer stuff beyond that to get ready for JFK. Anyway, Marine Corps, using the VDOT uh, training program, I took nine minutes off the, my marathon time and yeah, I have this very overdramatic photograph in the in the um, Washington Post in the sports section, kneeling <laughs> kneeling at the finish line in my Brooks gear, exhausted, exhilarated, with cameras all around me, as if I'd won the race. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was running with the top three women for most of the race, and everyone was going nuts. But it wasn't for me; it was for the three women. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I think I was third woman. No, I think, um, so I came in 245.58 at Marine Corps with this infamous picture that I really, I do quite like. And um, and that time has really stayed the same for nine years, uh, except I did, well, not nine, I, I did repeat 245 in the, what I consider one of the best Boston Marathons of all time. Everyone else mm -hmm. thinks it was disgraceful because, in the hurricane, yeah. The hurricane of 2018, <laughs> we, sw we swam to Boston, and it's almost the same story, actually. I haven't really thought about this. The expectations were so low because the weather was so bad, the mm. pressure was off. Like, I had no pressure in either Marine Corps or that Boston, and even though I trained well, that that let me relax, and, I, and maybe it's about being British and being used to the rain, uh, and it was extremely difficult. But yeah, I just I was clipping off six fifteens in Boston and trying to tuck in with people, whoever was up front, like that, and uh, surged to the finish line in Boston and broke broke my PR by I think twenty or thirty seconds. Mm -hmm. Collapsed into the volunteers' arms. I, I love the dramatic finish. Apparently, <laughs> right. um, so that was that's my my two forty five is my time, and I tried to go two forty on a few occasions. Um, We'll see. We'll see if I ever come back to really wanting to to get my time down because I'm I am honestly enjoying my mountain running and my my super long ultra ultra stuff right now.
Yeah, I was going to say that, I mean, it's certainly consistent, right? You're running the same times for almost a decade. and um, But that Boston effort, it has to be your best. Obviously, you don't have the time um, to show for it. But um, the effort, who knows, you know, what it would have been or how fit you were. I think the other interesting thing is that winter, it was pretty crappy, right, as most winters are in the Northeast. But I think that you were sort of trained for those conditions, like you said. Um, I think it's so part you, of, in, a, well, in, you know? in a sick way, it's part of the fun of Bo- of living in New York or the Northeast <laughs> and knowing that Boston falls in April and you're going to train through the snow and the sleet and you have to, you have to change your speed workout because of the snowstorm or the, you know, it's, it's a mess. It's a complete mess, but that's, it's part of the puzzle. And I think I enjoy that training does not go as straightforward as what the plan shows you on your laptop or on your fridge. Yeah. It's, well, my frustration just as a coach and, and watching you and Tiffany closely is just um, obviously running. It's a lifestyle for you guys and you travel and the ultra races is part of what you do, but it's incredible to see how you've been able to balance running fast with all the ultra training and and racing that you're doing. And I honestly don't know how you keep it up, especially working full time in in New York and um, you guys travel so much on the weekend. So you do get out to, to places to train for these ultra competitions, but it's incredible to see how you balance the speed and the ultra. How long did that take? Have you felt like you found the formula to manage it or is it just you feel like it's mostly off of strength at these point at this point um i think i think some of it just comes from a natural standpoint like you know you're i mean i'm not super fast but i'm not slow but i also have this i also have this big endurance in my system as well, which I didn't really know until the last few years that I can, I seem to be able to like move my body for not just a day, but multiple days in races now with very little sleep. Yeah. And I enjoy that adventure and experience a lot. There's a lot of it, even though it's suffering, it's physical suffering, there's an overall enjoyment, maybe not in the moment, but definitely leading up to those races and then remembering them as memories of my life. Um, I think a big thing may be just location. I think living in the city, um, I kind of call myself a hybrid runner, meaning I, I'm a road runner and I'm a trail runner. But I'm also, like you kind of point out, I'm a, I can be a fast marathon runner and I can also be a pretty, pretty good uh, ultra marathon runner as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I th- I've always felt in some ways that a lot of my years um, – start with Boston and that's been a great kind of catapult into the summer when I've I've got a I've got a huge race be it Western States 100 uh the 200 mile race in Tahoe we spoke about before I did a race in Italy last year called Tour de Jean which is basically the the most famous tr- longest trail race in the world which is 200 plus miles with <laughs> crazy crazy elevation changes um, but I think that speed in December through mid-April towards a Boston, which has normally been a you know pretty good fast sub three time consistently, helps 
then transitioning to like weekends, like like weekends up at Beacon, Cold Spring, Bear Mountain, weekend trips to yeah. a race in Colorado, you know, just to like build up to this like a goal uh, normally in July, August, September. That's cool. And I just want to close on the, there was a quote, I think it was in response related to Tao 200, I guess. So after three days, what it was three days, only three hours of sleep. Um, and you talked about I had diabetes. I can't quit diabetes. So why would I ever quit a race? Is that sort of, you know, the driving theme for you in terms of training through these winters and, you know, finishing and looking for the next big challenge and, um, and these ultra competitions, is that really, sort of the driving theme for you. Yeah, I think I think you touched on this a while back in the conversation, but the doctor that diagnosed me or not yeah. sorry, didn't diagnose he gave me the bad news that running probably couldn't be a, a huge part of my life to have good diabetes control. That gave me an a lot of fire in my belly. Um, and I don't look back and think about this guy a lot. Maybe it sounds like I do. I really don't think about that. But that was just a fire my belly to prove just to prove in general anyone that doubts you doesn't mean you should doubt yourself right you need to be have confidence have the right people around you be it a great coach uh teammates parents family all of that you need a good network of people like i'm very fortunate to have to have that in in tiffany in my doctor um in you as a coach in gary as a teammate as a you know Many, many, many things. Um, but yeah, that Tahoe race, that's um, that's a kind of a powerful message in some ways. Um, the RD gave me bib number one, not because I was the best, but, but because I told her mm. that um, I was raising money for, uh, I was raising money for type one diabetes children in Rwanda uh, through a nonprofit with my team at that time. And that was my kind of driving force to make sure I wouldn't quit. Uh, and I'd always think about people less fortunate than myself as I was kind of suffering. I mean, amazing scenery and amazing course, but a complete suffer fest of three days of only three out of three hours of sleep to run 200 miles. That's crazy. Uh, but I was at mile 60 at an aid station at three, at three in the morning or something. I had a nap, like my first nap of the race. And if you, just to put this in context, because it's a little bit left field of normal running races. This, if you, if you sleep, which you really have to for 200 miles, the race clock keeps, keeps ticking along. So you have to, you're managing when to sleep, when to stop for food, you know, when to change clothes. It all takes time and you're trying to calculate how to do all this. So I came in this aid station, 60 miles in, absolutely, like I got lost, I'd been sick, it was, I was a mess. My parents, Tiffany, my other crew, just, they saw my face, they all thought, and I thought too, that this was gonna be my first DNF. They, they were just convinced I was just gonna pull the plug. Mm. There's no way I could do 140 more miles in this state. I took a nap, 45 minute nap, I woke up, still felt terrible, of course. I looked at the bib on my shorts, with the number one, and I I put in Sharpie on the bib uh, T D a rep so it read T one D with the bib just to keep reminding me of why I was here, why I was why I put myself in this situation, 
and that was it. I just, I just got up and um, just kind of got on with it. Honestly, just got on with it, and just another two days of hiking and running and getting around this insanely large loop to the finish. That was the that was the inspiration. That's always the inspiration. It's always been thinking about people less fortunate than me, um, you know, that are, that are diagnosed with diabetes, that are probably feeling scared and feeling lost and feeling a bit hopeless. And I want to make sure they, they hear the message, my message that doesn't have to stop you. It's the complete opposite. It can actually help you um, achieve absolutely the best things, you know, in life. I mean, these, these are some of the greatest moments of my of my life that I've that I've gone through as much as much pain and pain as they are physically like I, I I love them I love the experiences and um yeah I'm happy I happy I found this sport and really fell in love with it after spending my initial years as a you know young teenager almost kind of fighting it it's amazing to think about like the impact it's almost, I keep thinking of like Michael Jordan, you know, the classic story, like the high school coach cut him from the team, you know, and that was the moment where he was determined. He also grew, I think, six inches the next year, but he, he that was the moment that like kind of changed him and he became determined. It's almost like you want to, you want to thank the doctor, you know, for, for having that impact almost right i don't think he ever would have imagined but think of the impact just of you know the people the impact you've had on other individuals that are in similar situations or how you've inspired others and it you can sort of be traced back to that moment you know which is pretty 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 powerful yeah i mean there's like an, another very quick story um i ran a 50 miler in san francisco uh great race held by the North Face. It's not on anymore, but it's just a fantastic marine. Uh, I think it's Headlands or Highlands. I can't remember the area just to go over the Golden Gate Bridge. That's a great place for trail runners. If you haven't been out there, I definitely encourage you to get out there for a race or just to go visit. Anyway, I was in that race wearing my team, team kit. Our team is a, it's a professional team of cyclists, runners, triathletes, um, Team Nova Nordisk. And our logo was changing diabetes, which is just a very powerful kind of two words, simple phrase, you know, showing that we can, we can almost do whatever we want. And I ran past a couple of guys, uh, like, you know, mid forties and this kid that was probably 14, 15 and this dad and this guy, I don't know who they are. They're just going crazy for me on the trails. I'm coming towards them. And his dad goes, my son, he's diabetic too. It's like you, you rock. Go, go get it. I mean, that's that's awesome. absolutely like the energy, and like, I gave this kid a high five and all that. Like it was like a split second like moment. I, we we don't know who we who we are. Like I don't know who these people are name wise, and we haven't connected since. But that moment is that's the moment I remember from fifty miles. It's not like my time. It's not who else was running. It's not the weather. Like that was such a powerful thing. And I get to experience that uh, again and again and again um, because I've put myself in that situation now where I want to, I want to be exposed as I'm, I'm obviously talking to you and doing other things like this. Like I want to be that person on the pedestal saying, yeah, I'm type one diabetic. So what? Like, look, look what I can do. You can do it too. That's awesome, man. Thank you for sharing today.